and welcome to Funny Business, a podcast for free thinkers. I'm Robbie Hicks. And I'm Lockie Bradford. On today's episode, we have the one and only Matt Jones from Four Pillars. How good is that, Rob? Honestly, I know we say it most episodes, but I really enjoyed this chat. He's so, so clever. Hearing the story of how him and his other two co-founders have scaled the business at Four Pillars, but also the culture that they've created there as an organization and the targets that they're setting themselves to be the standard of a modern Australian business. Mate, I'm loving it. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Enjoy. Matt Jones, thank you so much for jumping on the pod and sitting down and having a chat with us. I wanted to, to learn about your journey into Four Pillars. Obviously, it's, it's a big success. Um, just want to hear sort of the story behind that and how that all started. Like every business story, there's a lot of ways in. Um, I like to take it all the way back to the Atlanta Olympics because that seems like an unlikely place for a, a, a bald, overweight, middle-aged man to start. But it wasn't me. It was, um, it was one of my business partners, Cameron. He, he ran for Australia in, uh, in Atlanta. He was a 400-meter runner. So he ran was he really? Four- he ran the four by 400 squad. They made the semis. I think he ran the third leg. Um, Stuart always likes to tell people that he dropped the bat on. Cameron likes to confirm that he didn't. Um, but look, they, they went okay. And um, he comes back to Australia. And in 97, he's running pretty quick. And he, he gets put in one of those sort of Olympic, you know, high-performance training programs. And, and as part of that, they, they place you in a job that's going to give you enough flexibility to train. And obviously, they're you know, aiming him towards Sydney. And in surely the most unlikely move ever, they place him in the wine industry. And they place him with this guy called Stuart Gregor, who, you know, had, had Stuart had the, the profile then that he has now, they wouldn't have done in a million years. But anyway, they, they place him with Stu and Stu goes, okay, who's this, who's this kid? And takes him out for lunch. And I don't think Cameron comes back from lunch that day. He never makes the Sydney Olympic squad, not even close. So, so between him and Stu, his, his Olympic career is over, but they, they become great mates and they start, you know, messing around in wine and, and having a couple of cracks. Not really serious about the wine, but not serious about the business side. So they'd been, they'd sort of been drifting around and tooling around in wine for, for a number of years. And I met Stu at a lunch in 2012 and, and we hit it off. And he at the time was running a, a, a little, uh, sort of wine and food and lifestyle focused PR agency. And he, he wanted a bit of hand thinking about where that could go, where, you know, where, how the world was changing and we can talk about, you know, my background into that. Anyway, so we start doing some work together. He says, you should meet my mate Cameron. Turns out they had had a, had a night on the gins and tonics and, and a, the start of the night said, we should make tonic. There's no good tonic in the world. And by the end of the night, they're like, it's not the tonic that's fun. It's the gin that's fun. So they, they shifted to maybe gin could be a thing. They thought I could be an interesting addition to the piece. And in late 2012, the three of us decided to, to have a crack at getting serious about making gin. And um, here we are coming up to eight years later. That's How crazy. That? I can't believe he, he lost his Olympic dream because he, he found alcohol. That's a sad story. <laughs> <huh>? oh, <laughs> I'm not sure he was gonna, ever going to get better than the semis. So, you know. He's done okay. You got to work on your reality. Like you got an interesting story about the gin, don't you? Oh yeah, mate. I'm a, I'm a. In my previous life, I'm a bartender, and one of the most thing, one of the most annoying things as a bartender is doing extra work. So everyone who comes into the bar and orders a four pillars gin gets a slice of cucumber. Just the, just the influx and the interest in four pillars has just grown over time, hasn't it? Oh mate, it's 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 been incredible, and it, it it's like funny you mentioned cucumber, right? Because you know, when we, when we launched 
because cucumber is in is in some ways still the enemy and you've just illustrated the, the journey that four pills starts to go on because we we come into that gin market so we start talking about it in 2012 and at that time the stats were a bit unreliable but in in what what is now known as the super premium gin category so gin over over sort of 60 70 bucks hendrix had about 80 percent of that market and they had just come in and and taken a a category that was a little bit tired, that was a little bit, you know, Nana's tipple and all that stuff. And they had, they'd sort of injected new life into it. And a big part of that was that sort of, sort of visual prestige of someone walking away from the bar and going, I'm not a cheapskate. I didn't get the Gordons and uh, the Gordons and gun tonic. I ordered Hendrix. And, and, I, and you can tell because this big cucumber flag is sticking out of my, sticking out of my drink. And at that time, no one was really asking for, for an Australian gin. And, and I think that was a really important part of the, the sort of Genesis story was not, you know, not, not believe in your own hype and not thinking that anyone out there was desperate for Australian gin. And, 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 and yet, you know, within two years, you saw this enormous amount of excitement and pride, particularly in Melbourne and then, you know, spreading across Australia, that Australia could make not just good gin, but, but perhaps some of the world's best gin. And, you know, critically, that first gin we made, our rare dry gin, which is the, 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 the black and copper label that's become a bit of an icon, you know, we use whole fresh oranges in that. So we have waged a, an ongoing seven-year battle against the cucumber going, let's get, a, let's, get a, let's get an orange in there. Because, of course, you know, gin 1.0 dumped lemon or lime in there gin 2.0 put cucumber and so you know you're actually getting a little interesting behavioral challenge that even long after people were supporting the brand you still had to like fight that instinct to go oh that's a good one put cucumber in that and go no no it's even better let's get a slice of orange in there i'll have to have, give that a crack i reckon have you tried have you tried it with a bit of orange rob no, no i haven't i'm a cucumber man yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. Hendrix, Hendrix, has, Hendrix has still got a little Can't grip on you, a little grip on your mental real I'm estate. So sorry, there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> How did you come up with the concoction? Obviously, was that was that your sort of doing in terms of the ingredients and where you wanted to, to land, or was it more the branding, having that creative strategy background that you had? Um, it, look, we we were a hundred percent led by the gin. Um, you know, we when we started, you know, the the three of us have all got a real a real shared passion around a few things i mean none of us are sort of hyper commercial people none of us were sort of starting out particularly greedy we didn't sit around and go okay are we gonna you know maneuver our way to some big grand exit and payday i think we were all interested in our own ways in making something and making something good cameron his his path in the wine industry had been sort of everywhere from production to sales and marketing to general management. But he was he was the get your hands dirty guy. Stu had been a wine writer, he'd done a lot of kind of wine judging. He was, you know, he was running a PR agency talking about wines. So he was much more interested in in building relationships and building connections. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, my background was creative strategy in the brand experience space. I was really interested in how brands get built and I'd spend a lot of time advising other people and thought maybe it's time to take my own medicine. But I think for all of us, just this idea of making something good, making something worthwhile and seeing where that went. So very much from the outset, it was about the gin and, and you know, we sort of thought, okay, let's, let's embark on this journey. And I think quickly you have, look, you've got lots of choices in business as you guys know, but one of the ones that we had early on was, you just go the expected way and the expected way is who makes gin? Our British people make gin. 
it's London dry style. It's juniper heavy. It's all the, all the gin in Britain is that let's just go and make one of those. So that's easy. You know, you grab a recipe off the internet and away you go. We, we didn't want to do that. We said, well, why would, why would people down here in, in Australia and in, you know, for us in, in modern Australia and all of its diversity and creativity and energy, why would people down here make gin the same way that the Brits have made it for 200 years? Who's doing stuff differently? And so for us, that was the Americans. And if you look at the craft beer boom, if you look at the craft spirits boom, generally the US was about 10 years ahead of us. So we put some money in the bank and, and um, Stu and Cam, jumped on the plane. This is sort of repeated theme in, in Four Pillars land that they went and did the fun trip and I stayed at home and built the deck. Uh, but they, they, uh, they jumped on a plane, they, they flew up to Seattle and they hired a car and they drove from Seattle down to, to LA and they, they visited about 35 craft distilleries. And, and really they came back with a huge amount of inspiration and two kind of key decisions. The first was the Americans are making gin that's so different, that's so out there and expressive of, of place and ideas. Because the thing about gin is, apart from distilling juniper, you can, you can go for your life. You can distill anything you want, which means gin, and this sounds a bit bullshitty, but you know, gin can taste of place, gin can taste of ideas because it just goes where you want to take it. And so for them, they could see Americans were taking it in really interesting places. So, well, why the hell wouldn't we make modern Australian gin? You know, if, if modern Australia is a combination of great sort of Mediterranean Southern European flavors and cultures combined with all the spice and heat and funk of Asia. Well, let's smash all that together in gins. And if, if Australia is arguably the most delicious place on earth because of our produce, because of our native botanicals, because of all those food cultures and references, again, let's smash that into some gins. And the other decision they came back with, we've got to buy this particular still. And uh, they, every time they tasted gin, that they'd really love. They'd go out the back of this little distillery somewhere in in, uh, in California and they'd find a Carl still, Carl of Germany based in Stuttgart and, and they really make the world's best gin making machines, pure thoroughbred, all copper gin making machines. And the waiting list was about 12 months to get hold of one. At the time, there wasn't a Carl still in Australia, I don't think. And we're like, look, we've, we've got to have one of those. So those early decisions, you know, let's, let's do it once, do it properly, go slow, get the right equipment, not copycat, um, do something uniquely Australian. And, and the deck I'd been writing back here in Australia was saying, look, you know, no one is asking for an Australian gin. No one is sitting around going, oh my God, when are we going to make gin? And so it's only going to be interesting if, if the gin is interesting. It's not going to be interesting because we make generic gin with great branding. It's going to be interesting because we were the first people to really encapsulate modern Australia and all of its deliciousness and craft and creativity and, and focus on flavor and focus on hospitality. If we pack all that into gin and wrap all of that in a brand, then it would go pretty well. So gin was really the, the, the first, second and third conversation we had. And, and, and until we were comfortable, we'd made better gin, more delicious gin and, and everything else was detailed. But you know, the, the interesting thing was with that, with that 12 month wait, to get the steel, it did actually force us to think about the wrapper that goes around that and the, and, and the way that you brand that and the way that you storytell that. And that, I guess, was what came together in our, in our launch, which we did through crowdfunding and, and gave us that opportunity to both test, is the gin compelling, but also can we actually build some story and, and, and build some community? And, and we, I reckon this is good timing, this podcast. I reckon we launched that crowdfunding campaign pretty much exactly seven years ago. Unreal. How did it go? We spoke to, um, who did we have earlier? Alan, Alan Crabb. Alan Crabb. Yeah. Possible. Yeah. Possible. 
Alan would have been the guy that I'd have spoken to. So yeah, we 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 launched it on Possible, um, which I think was the, I think at the time, and I'm, I don't know where they are today. I think they were the third largest sort of crowdfunding platform in the world, but obviously they were the they were the Australian one. Uh, they hadn't done a lot. Really, no one had done a lot with with food and drink in crowdfunding. There'd been a little bit of playing around the edge, but mostly crowdfunding sort of seemed to fall into either tech products or sort of artistic endeavors. And there wasn't a lot of food and drinks, certainly not a lot of booze and crowdfunding. And um, yeah, mate, it went well. We sold out in four days. Um, <laughs> 300, and, I mean, look, it seemed big at the time. And now you look back and you go, okay, well, we sold our first batch of gin. We sold 400 bottles of gin, which, you know, doesn't, doesn't get very far these days, but it felt momentous at the time. But I think the, you know, the two things it did that, that, that probably are really relevant to this podcast, you know, the first was crowdfunding is a really interesting discipline because it requires you to have a story that sells. You know, you're only going to be successful in crowdfunding if the, if the story, if the purpose, if the sense of what are we trying to do, what are we asking you to back, if that's, com if that's compelling, you're going to go well. If that's not compelling, it doesn't matter how good your product is because your product doesn't exist yet. Um, I think the second thing that the crowdfunding campaign did, which, which has absolutely lasted to this day, is we, we said to those, those 300, I think it was 308 people, we said those 308 people who bought a bottle from batch number one, we said, you, not only will you get a bottle of gin, but you will in perpetuity be our VIPs. You will in perpetuity have early access rights to every gin we make forever. And so that batch number one club exists to this day. And I think what it did was it hardwired a belief in the power of a truly engaged social community. It, it's a hardwired a belief in the power of, of quality over quantity, of, of true commitment over general reach. This idea of a small number of customers who would cross the road for you and fight for you as a brand are more important than a large pool of customers who vaguely heard of you and might occasionally accidentally drink you in a bar, but don't really care and wouldn't really go to battle for you. We've spoken a lot around community, like community engagement and building a community on, the, on this podcast. It's, it's great that you've touched on it because I guess that's one of the things that when we do talk about it, it goes into that storytelling and the purpose. And if you can build that engaged community early, they're, they're the ones, they're your super fans as a brand that's going to take you to the next level. They'll be, like you said, they've been with you for the long run, seven years later, and there's still people there, the, the, the original founders club. Look, they, there are, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a constant uh, not battle. That's the wrong term, but you know, you, you, you've constantly got to interrogate if the stuff that got you here is going to get you where you want to go. I mean, you know, business is, is fairly relentless and you know, whether we all agree with it or not, there is this sense that if you're not growing, you're not moving forward and, and you're, you're slipping backwards. And so, you know, there is this kind of hunger to grow. And, and so I think what, what that community does is it, it, it gives you some of that rocket fuel to grow. It also keeps you quite honest. You know, as you pursue growth, you keep thinking about, yeah, but well, what would those guys think of it? What would the, mm -hmm. what would the folks who were there at the beginning and bought into the purpose and bought into the story of what we're trying to do, how would they feel about that now and, and, and prevent you from maybe taking sort of growth orientated decisions that would sort of corrupt and, 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 and compromise some of the heart of the brand. So, so you're absolutely right that they're, they're powerful in terms of giving you that initial rocket fuel, but they're also really powerful in terms of keeping you honest and keeping you on track and, and keeping you connected to what you're all about. That's a bit Love of an that. anchor, social anchor. Mm. Exactly right. And, and, you know, when, 
you know, we might have a chat in a bit about, you know, listening to customers and, and customer centricity, but there's no, nothing better than, than being so close to your customers and having such an intimate relationship with your core customers that you don't really have to make a special effort to, to, to listen to them or understand what they think or what they want because they're telling you all the time because you're in a real time conversation with them rather than as I'm sure all of us have experienced with some of our friends in the sort of top end of town, they really have to go for this sort of almost like special effort to open their ears again and start listening because they're often being quite deaf. To they're too their far away from really the customer. Are. Exactly. They're too right. far away. They're too disconnected, but take it like, let's touch on it now then we may as well go straight into it. You've got, you guys have got a pretty at four pillars, you a pretty heavy social presence. Um, how do you think that helps you as a company get close to the customer and get that feedback and pivot and have the customers at this, uh, kind of like focus on customer centricity as a company. Look, it's mate. There's, there's, there's a million and one things to say. And, um, and I'm often guilty of trying to say them all at once. Um, and there's not enough room in the podcast world for that. So touch on a touch on a couple of things. Um, I think the first is, is maybe it's a zoom out from that, but I think you've got to be really, clear on what you're trying to be and 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 how what business success looks like what your marketing model is that's going to drive that business success and where social media fits into that and i think you know social media can be so many things it can be a tool of, of marketing it can be a tool of uh, of uh, intense two-way customer communications it can be a form of of, uh, of, of listening and testing. It can be a, a, a channel for delivering customer service. It can be all those things. You've got to kind of figure out what it's going to be. Uh, at, at the big picture level, one of the things that we were really clear about always was, and we didn't quite have this language then, um, but, but I think we've, we've, we've all got this language much more now. We were really clear that we would never be able to do justice to gin and what gin could be in Australia. And frankly, we were never going to be able to break even under the incredibly difficult excise regime. And this is not, this is not a conversation about tax and government policy, but you need to understand that gin and spirits in this country get punished by tax in a way that wine in particular doesn't. It's incredibly hard to make a success of running a spirits business in Australia because of an incredibly punitive uh, excise regime on, on spirits in particular. And that's not a whinge. That's probably more of a, a, an observation. If you're the scale that Four Pillars is at now, it still hurts, but we're doing okay. But if you're looking at the guys trying to come up, it's a real challenge. It's a huge hump for them to get over. So we were never going to be able to get over that hump and build a business that, that did justice to what we wanted to do if we didn't build a business that combined two things, that was both a direct consumer business, a D2C business that used crowdfunding, then social media to build a database do a lot of email marketing, drive direct sales, run a really kick-ass e-commerce business, and at the same time, play with all the big boys in terms of the retailers, the guys mm. at Coles, the guys at Woolies, the great independent bottle shops, the banner groups. We had to be able to do both. And that's really difficult. If you think about you know, brands that are launching out there in 2020 right now, they are typically making one choice or the other you know you think about a brand that i really admire over the last couple of years away the american luggage brand oh, they're, they're cool. just just a full d to c assault right like there's a band a brand that's been built on instagram and then a little pop-up retail it'd be a long time before you see an away luggage concession in a dj's or a Maya because they've gone their own route we couldn't afford to be that committed we had to do both so we had to then believe and be able to articulate to our friends in, in retail have building a social media presence 
was going to help us build a direct channel to our customers, which would both drive our direct sales, but also create a halo of influence over that wider customer going to go into retail. That the type of person who wanted to connect directly with the brand, who wanted to follow the brand, who wanted to sign up for their emails, who wanted to come to masterclasses, who once we built the Four Pillars Distillery would want to come and visit there and hang out. But that type of person was different to the kind of person who on a Friday night goes, I need some beer and goes down to Dan Murphy's and pushes a trolley around and puts a slab of beer in the trolley, grabs a couple of bottles of wine, thinks, oh, wait a minute, maybe I need a gin, goes to the gin aisle mm -hmm. and thinks, what do I buy? Oh, I have four pillars, I'll grab that. Like the different customers, but one influences the other. So the, f the first thing that was really important was still to understand how that system is going to come together. I think the, the second thing is more your, your question, which was really around how does, how does that inform our, our listening? And, and I don't want to sound like um, we don't listen because we do, but I think really what we've embraced social media as is, is a channel. And this, this is a bit of a sort of, uh, sounds a bit wanky, but in the early days we, we sort of, wrote down this notion that we wanted to be a business built on craft, as I talked about before. Like we wanted to be all about the gym. And we said, well, what does a business built on craft look like when it does marketing? And well, it doesn't look like it's doing marketing. We're, we're makers, not marketers. It, you know, if you, if you looked at that business, if you could kind of be a fly on the wall at any given second and you looked at four pillars, what we want you to see is, wow, they're making something else. Mm. They've just made mm. that rare dry gin. They've launched it. They're already barrel aging a gin. They're already talking to the guys at Gin Palace in Melbourne about making a gin Navy strength. They're already trying to figure out what to do with all those gin steamed oranges. And they've got a local maker helping them turn that into marmalade. Uh, they're already thinking about their first bartender series. They're already booking tickets to go and make gin with these guys in Spain that, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're doing all this stuff. They're making, making, making. And so we said, well, then our brand strategy, if we're a business built on craft, our brand strategy comes down to one word, which is intimacy. We just want to bring people closer and there's no better, no better mechanism, no better wiring in the world to drive customer intimacy than, than social media. So for us, we didn't see it as a channel to talk at people and we didn't see it as a channel to listen to people so much as just a channel to close down the distance between us. Love and that. So and, that, and that's really what it, what it was all about for us. And sometimes you're listening more, and sometimes you're, you're talking more, but really it was just about closing down that distance. Do you think the difference between, I, I guess when you talk content around, um, you can either market things and really tell people what it is, or by the sounds of it, what I've looked at, it's more around documentation. So you guys document what you're doing as content. And then the transparency is there with the customers because they can see behind the scenes and they they feel part of the journey. They come along on that journey with you as a business. Look, I think, that's, I think that's right. And I'd probably add one word to that, which is it's documented and curated. Yeah. Because the, 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 the truth is no one loves the truth, right? Like it, there's, there's, always, there's always a bit of ugliness in the truth. It doesn't make it bad. It doesn't mean it's something you need to hide away, but it's not something you need on display. So, you know, it's, 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 it's Instagram with a filter. Yeah. It's still the photo you took. It's still what was going on. But you know what? The lighting wasn't that great that day and pop that filter's just nudged it up a bit. I think, you know, for us, our business is, is, is true. Um, and there's lots of stuff we do. For example, you know, we're, we capture, we try to capture every drop of rainwater that falls on that roof uh, at our distillery in Hillsville. We've got solar panels all over the roof. You will never see a Instagram post with a nice squared off picture of our solar panels. 
because it's just not part of the curated truth that is relevant and motivating to our customers. But if you want to talk to us about our commitment to sustainability and limiting the footprint that we're making on the planet, fantastic. We'll talk about that all day long. But that's not part of the, if, if you, your business is your business, your business is what's true about you. And if your brand is then the curated picture you, you sort of put out into the world, we choose not to make our environmental commitment a big part of that curated brand. Not because we don't think it's important, but because we just think that's what good business should be these days. So that's not part of our brand story. So we choose not to put that all over our Instagram feed. So it's, it's documented, but, but curated to be relevant to what the brand's all about, which for us is the craft of making gin. And I would never want someone to think that we make a less good gin because we're focused on environmental efficiency. We are focused on that because we think that's what good businesses do, you know, and, and we hate waste and we hate anything that, that, you know, it's creating a greater wasteful pr- footprint than, than a business like ours needs. So we, we, we do everything we can. Like, you know, we, we create pop-up stores that, that went around uh, Meyer stores at Christmas last year and the whole pop-up structures were built out of the old pallets and boxes that would have got thrown away from the distillery. And our designer came out and he looked at all this stuff and he, he applied these kind of amazing techniques, this Japanese technique to actually char them black and make them look really beautiful and sexy. But the whole thing was just, just reconstituted old pallets. But, that's not a big part of the external facing story because that's just doing business in the right, in the right ways. And, and then we, we keep the story focused on the gym. Oh, I love that. How you can just sort of the storytelling aspect and the curated stuff that you're talking about, what the, the picture that you're portraying to the public. It's super interesting because we talk about that in terms of, even in terms of copy and stuff like that with your socials and, and different things that you're going to put on different platforms. So it's interesting that you take it to the absolute next level and it comes down to everything. I think that's super We've never heard that before. No, I think and, and just, oh, sorry, Rob, you go. No, I was just going to say that it's, a, it's interesting when you look at it that way is that I think a lot of brands, I, I, your background must come in big play here, but understanding what the core purpose of your business is and people might, uh, if you're trying to, if you do care, like you're saying, you do care about different things, like you do care about the environment, you're trying to show that you, you give a fuck about sustainability in the world and you want to make it a better place, leave a lower footprint. But it's hard, it must be, I see a lot of brands, it must be difficult to understand where that all fits in. So it's like their brand becomes disconnected because they're trying to do too much or show too much. You, not your that their heart's not in the right place. Do you know what? I, I think you've landed on the, the key word here, which is, which is that sense of purpose. And two things on that. Mate, if I say two things on that again, <laughs> you, you, can, you can shoot me. Two um, but two things. Uh, my daughter was saying that's actually apparently that's become the class motto. She's in year four. And apparently they're only allowed to put that out of, now they're all like two things. I don't know. Maybe it's a culture. Show and tell. <laughs> yeah, just, just two things on that teacher. Uh, look, the, the first is that I think there's, I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about what purpose is all about in business. Uh, the, the language of purpose has been to an extent captured by this idea of social purpose. So you see a lot of marketing thinkers at the moment writing um, about how, you know, purpose doesn't drive business growth because when they're using the language of purpose, they mean specifically social purpose. I think it's really important that brands articulate purpose at a more, uh, at a more holistic business level. And for some brands like Tom's shoes, that may then include a level of social purpose that may include a social mechanism, but to understand your purpose as an organization does not require you to have a a specific social purpose. It it requires you to understand why you exist. 
and why you matter and why you have the right to do what you do and why you have the right to grow. And what that definition of purpose gives you, I think is a bridge between your business strategy and your brand strategy. If you don't have that, then what you can end up having is a business strategy over here, a strategic plan that probably is out of date five minutes after you wrote it and over here, a marketing strategy. And then you're trying to make decisions based on those two things and they're pulling you in different directions. So mm. when we wrote our sense of purpose, we, we, we put four things down on the page, gin, cocktails, modern Australia community. We exist to elevate the craft of distilling gin, to celebrate the craft of the cocktail, to share the craft of modern Australia and to support the community on which our craft depends. That's why we exist. Everything comes back to those four pillars of purpose. We never talk to our customers about it. Purpose is not a conversation for your customers. Your customers should experience the things that fall out because of the decisions you make based on your purpose. So to your point then about sustainability, for us, if sustainability is something we care about, which it is, and that's just one of the things that we consider good business, then how could that be reflected in those other pillars? And so for us, one of those ways was then looking at all of this botanical waste from distilling and going, you know, there are kilograms of ginstein botanicals. There are kilograms of ginsteamed oranges left over every time we, we finish distillation. So what can we do with them? So you look at us today, we, we compost botanicals. We send botanicals to use as animal feed, most famously the pigs that have been fed up over the years in the Yarra Valley uh, that, that, that we coin gin pigs. We uh, send oranges to a marmalade preservist to make gin steamed orange marmalade. And occasionally she adds a dash of Campari and makes a breakfast Negroni. We now work with hunted and gathered chocolate in Melbourne. We work with Olsen salt to make a, a rare dry gin chocolate and a rare dry gin salt that uses botanicals that uses gin steamed oranges. And then they use their craft to turn that into delicious produce. Um, we take, the water that's left over in the stills, the stillage, we give it to a local cheesemaker and he washes the cheese and that becomes a gin moonshine cheese that we use as a snack in the distillery door. Um, and for years, we've used the heads and the tails of the distillate. So the really, the really alcoholic heads and the really funky tails that, that are sort of either too alcoholic or, or too funky with botanicals to go into the gin. And we'd use them as, as, as cleaning, as, as a cleaning product in the distillery because it, you know, it's 93% alcohol. So then when, um, when the pandemic hit, which is always a fun time for every business, we automatically had a sanitizer product on tap that was made from gin. And so we were able to pivot in about four weeks to not just being one of a thousand gin distilleries to make hand sanitizer, but to actually have the know-how to make that out of our core gin product and make that as a byproduct of that. And so that act of sustainability was, has always been the consumer facing act. So even like sitting on my desk here, that little spray, that's, that's made from gin hand sanitizer that, that is a, you know, a, a dedicated byproduct. It's not a, you know, it's not a, a pull up the handbrake on the business. It's something we're already doing. We just, we just scaled it a bit to, to help people out, particularly on the front line of healthcare. So for us, the consumer facing act of sustainability is how could we throw nothing away? The wider business act of sustainability is okay. Well, how can we reduce our energy footprint? How can we invest to convert our stills to steam? How can we capture every drop of rainwater on the roof? How can we reduce our packaging waste? How can all that stuff? But that's not part of our brand storytelling because it doesn't fit with that core sense of purpose that we want to convey to people. But if I'm right, it does fit with your internal values as a team. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And it is part of taking care of our community and taking care of our environment and all of those things. But you, you bang on 
there's a values basis there as a business. Yeah, so we, we, we talk about these tenets that we've got as a business and one of them is to be a modern Australian business. And we think, you know, you couldn't claim to be a modern Australian business if you weren't trying to do business in the right ways and operate in the right ways. But if we all talked about that all the time, then there's nothing that's going to differentiate you from every other modern Australian business out there. So the brand stays focused on what we think is most special about us, but you're absolutely right. We're always playing to our underlying values as people and as an organization. That's unreal. I love that. Uh, what about um, building a team? I know you were talking about before is that when you are trying to build a direct to consumer business and you're focusing heavily on email marketing, um, social presence, understanding and, and getting to know that community and, and that customer, did that impact the type of people that you brought into the team? Because by the sounds of it, you would have had more of a tech focus or a, more of a digital strategy focus to the type of people you brought in. You'd think, wouldn't you? Oh, maybe, maybe <laughs> I'm wrong. <laughs> um, no, look, you, you, you would think, but it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, um, you know, first of all, we, we, we built the team in two ways. First, we built it slowly, and then all of a sudden, we built it quickly. And I'm, I'm not actually sure. You know, you look back, you're like, when did that inflection point happen? When did we go from feeling really, really scrappy to, to suddenly going, holy shit, we've got a team here. We have to think about people and culture. We need someone who takes care of HR. And that, that kind of happened in a, in a bit of a rush. I think in the, this was really a business established by, by six people. You had the three, uh, the three co-founders, me, Stu and Cam, and we all played to our strengths. Cam went very quickly part-time and then full-time into the business because he, he's, you know, he's the Olympian. He's the pragmatist. He also happens to have a great palate. So he was the guy who was going to figure out how do we make world-class gin? How do we build this operation? How do we operate this giant gin kettle, which is basically a bomb. It's a bomb that makes delicious liquid. So operate it and don't blow ourselves up. <laughs> how, do we, how, do we, how do we master all of that? Stu's job was you know, how do we leverage the fact that you know we're very fortunate we are a bunch of 40 something blokes not 20 something blokes doing this which means not only do we have some battle scars and and some i don't know if you call it wisdom but some experience of failure and mistake which maybe means you've got some better judgment and you can back yourself quickly just to get on with things rather than second guessing everything but also more relevant to this we've got relationships we've got a little bit of leverage a bit of an ability to to to, to start to make some noise um, and then my job was to place the, the brand logic and the storytelling and the creativity around that, whether it was, you know, packaging, design, imagery, content, building out the digital. But then our three partners as well were all experienced professionals in their own right. And so, you know, my wife, Rebecca, for example, she, she built the website, she built the social media presence, she built all of that. Um, Stu's wife, Sally, drove all of the, the PR um, Cameron's wife Leah was was came out of the the physical design world and had been working in in with builders and architects and so she oversaw first the creation of the Four Pillars Distillery in Hillsville and then more recently the Four Pillars Laboratory here in Sydney. So we really leveraged the talents of all six founders. So it wasn't then a much bigger team. I mean, you then look at our you know our stills are named after founders' mums. So you've got you know the first one was Cameron's mum Wilma and then Stu's mum Jude and my mum doesn't drink so she got Eileen the experimental still the little miniature one so then we'd, we'd kind of run out of founders mum so then um, employee number one Scott his his mum Beth got a still named after her then employee number two Michelle she got a she got her, her mum got a still named after her in Coral 
and that's where we are now, five stills. And really that small gang of around about eight with, with a couple of other folks here and there, really strong social media person called Ebony came in, um, really hungry, young person out of sort of PR and trade and influence called Jen came in. And, and, and then we started to accumulate great hospitality people in the Yarra Valley. But there was a, on the whole, it was an older and less tech savvy team, but with a really strong understanding of what hopefully great brands and great storytelling were all about and just being willing to then figure it out. And, and, you know, my agency background meant I wanted to own stuff internally. So I wanted, if it was a core expertise, if it was a core competency we were going to need every day, I didn't want an agency to have that. I wanted either to own it, employ it or someone to teach us how to do it. So, you know, we learned, you know, we learned campaign monitor, we learned Eventbrite, we learned, Umbraco, we learned how to do that stuff and operate it internally and just found good partners to help teach us more of that. Um, so probably less tech than you'd expect, probably more hospitality heavy, design heavy, creative storytelling heavy, and then figuring out those enablers. Because at the end of the day, as you guys know better than me, being able to do the tech is not a differentiator. You know, the, the, the tech is just a tool. The question is, you know, what's the story you're trying to tell? What's the experience you're trying to create? What's the, the brand you're trying to be? What's the relationship you're trying to build? And this tech is just an enabler to do that. And I think we always over-indexed on people who understood that end brand story, gin relationship experience piece, and then were smart enough and old enough and ugly enough to ask the questions and admit when we didn't know stuff to try and figure out how to build that, that around it. But we always had belief that 21st century business was going to be built on a, almost a likely combination of committing to that traditional craft, like doing things exceptionally well, but then wiring that up with, with the best of social media and, and technology. And if you could marry those two things up, sort of old school business and craft values with new school tech and marketing, if you could put those two together, you're going to go pretty well. hundred percent. That's it. So you can teach old dogs new tricks. Old enough, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> no, that's, I think it's, it's cool. Cause you go, like you said before, technology is just a tool and it's, it's, you can learn different things. Like Locke and I, we're not the most technical people and we got, we do all the editing. We do all the, the different marketing and Locke's mm. the guru that we've got going at the moment around LinkedIn and Instagram around how we're doing our community management. And it's not that um, we're definitely not social media professionals, mm. but we understand how the different tools work and operate in order to get our brand messaging across. So it's, it's cool that you've grown your team in that sense where it's people first, not, tech first look 100 percent, and and we, we we talk about this today so um you know when you look at our social media presence it was really me and rebecca were doing all the community management in the early days and then um ebony joined us and, and came on board and today ebony leads a group of five people not including me and Rebecca. So if you, I'm not really allowed to touch social media anymore, but you know, there's five people <laughs> rotating doing, doing community management. And, you know, Eb's view is always that um, better to get someone who just intrinsically understands what the brand's all about, who embodies the stories and embodies the spirit. And we can teach in the platforms than people who come to go, no, I got this. I know this stuff works. I know the community management works. I know social media works. I've learned it somewhere else. And then potentially, we're going to spend all of our time trying to sort of sheep dip them in that understanding of the brand and, and chug down the brand Kool-Aid. And that's a much harder teach than learn the platforms, but fully just be invested in the brand. What about international markets, exploring international markets and stuff like that? The modern Australia take, 
has it been receptive? Have you tried to crack the international market? Is it something that you, how big do you want this baby to be? We want to do justice to what this thing can be. Um, we also always recognize that you just need to get to a point of scale to make this financially viable, to make sure that the, the sense of, of legacy for want of a better term, you know, the, 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 the really, I mean, the, the legacy, I think you've always got to have a, have an eye on, on, on what legacy is like, what are you, what are you trying to create? Are, are you trying to create something that can outlast you? So I, you know, I, I sort of take a sidestep for a second. I've, I was based in uh, in New York for a couple of years as the global head of strategy for a, a, a big creative agency there, and I moved back to Australia and you know had a young family and, and decided to start consulting. And at no stage was I trying to build a consultancy business that could outlast me. I was building the consultancy business as a vehicle through which I could make money flexibly. I didn't want to live on a plane anymore. I didn't want to be commuting back and forth to New York and Asia a lot. I wanted to be working mostly from Sydney and 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 there with my newborn and my two-year-old and my wife. So I wanted that flexibility. So you built a business that was based around you and your lifestyle at that moment. And at no stage was there this sense of, okay, yeah, but I'm going to build an agency brand and one day I'm going to sell it to someone else. With Four Pillars, it was the, it was the opposite thought. And while we weren't at any stage in those early days thinking about, you know, how do we exit this thing or how do we get a big payday? you are always thinking about, are we building something sustainable? Are we building something that can last? And, you know, when we, when we made a decision no more than 12 months into being on the market that we were going to buy a physical property in Healesville and build the Four Pillars Distillery, because before then, Wilma the Still had been down the back of a winery, the mate's winery called Rob Dolan in the Yarra Valley. And that was great, but we could only open it one day a year on World Gin Day. And we had queues down the road. And we're like, okay, we need to do this properly. Like if we're going to be a brand built on intimacy, as we talked about before, Social intimacy is great, but physical intimacy, again, pre-corona, social and int physical intimacy is even better. Letting people come to the brand home, share a drink, have a tasting, have a masterclass while watching us distill. There's nothing better than that. That's the ultimate experience. So as soon as we did that, you start to go, okay, well, this, we want to, we want to leave a footprint here in Hillsville. We want to create jobs and opportunity and pride in Hillsville and the Yarra Valley. And, and, and so once you start to think in those terms, you start to think about the financial viability of the business and, and to achieve that you're going to need growth and to achieve that growth, potentially 24, 25 million people in Australia aren't enough. So you need to look overseas. So the short answer, which I'm not good at giving, as you can tell is yes, overseas is important. We're currently in about 30 markets worldwide, but that sounds a lot more impressive than it is because it turns out what's quite easy to do is get some gin into a market. What's much harder to do is to get that second and that third and that fourth order to start to see that gin pull through to push beyond those few funky bars that are always looking for the next weird thing. And, you know, we've all been to bars like that in the world where, you know, they pride themselves on how their back bars got all sorts of weird juice on it. And that doesn't drive volume. So there's only a small number of markets where we're actually starting to, to sort of bridge that gap into becoming a, a viable brand where we're finding the right distributors, finding the right routes to market, building the right channels. And of course then, this, this little COVID situation has, has changed that dynamic because typically early adopters of Australian gin and overseas market, they're going to be cool bars. Well, those bars are, you know, folks are shifting towards retail. So we're actually having to, to rethink a lot of those strategies towards 
retail. So look, it's, it's, it's going okay. Um, we're very much a different brand in Australia where, you know, we're now pretty much neck and neck. So I said at the start of the podcast, you know, we were probably looking at a category where Hendrix had 80% of that category. You look at the category today, we're roughly neck and neck with Hendrix, which is extraordinary in Australia. Any other market, we are still this tiny niche little Australian player. We are, however, the current reigning international gin producers of the year, according to the International Wine and Spirits Comp in London. So, you know, that's there's a bit of kudos there to, to, to being heralded, at, you know, at a London Awards as the world's leading gin producers. So it's, I think the modern Australian story resonates. I think Australia has managed to change coffee culture around the world with the flat white. We, you know, we've got a growing reputation as a, as a nation of incredible flavor, creativity, food and drink, and, and gin can be part of that. But it's, it's still a long road and it forces us to, to, to really test how do we build brand overseas and build market share overseas. And, and the same methods that we've needed here aren't necessarily going to work there, which is why if we had a longer conversation or podcast part two, we would talk about how that's then driving a shift in the type of people we need in our business the types of skill sets we need because again those skill sets we could trust to get us so far in the first five years are probably not what are going to get us to our full potential in the next five years and that's okay that's part of that ongoing conversation as a business i think it's, it's really interesting i want to talk about um when you got you guys have obviously achieved some pretty cool things over the last seven years since you launched um as a team how do you bring like, like less about the brand and more about you guys operating as, as a collective, as a unit, how do you stay on track with what objectives you're trying to hit? How do you guys plan and reflect and, and make sure everyone knows on the right page? Cause you did speak pretty heavily around reducing waste and limiting yep. waste. And I think uh, goal setting and objectives is a big thing where a lot of waste can slip in. Yep. Look, it is. Um, okay. So my challenge is to respond to this question and not descend into cliche, um, <laughs> but I will fail. I will <laughs> fail miserably. Uh, look, first of all, we, we don't do the things that you've said there, Rob, enough. You know, we don't, we don't review our objectives enough. We don't stay on course enough. But I think a couple of things keep us, broadly speaking, on track. And I'll pick, I'll pick two. Um, really early on, we, Stu, Cam and I had a conversation and it sort of went roughly along the lines of who's going to be the boss? There's three of us as founders, who's going to be the boss? You know, do we, do we look at the, you know, not that we compared ourselves to these businesses, but like, you know, do you look at the guys at Google and go, oh, we'll take it in turns. Oh, it's Larry's turn for a bit. Well, now Sergey's going to be in charge. Do we, you know, do we figure out, well, you know, distilling is distilling. So Cameron, you can be master distiller and Matt, you're the brand guy. So you can be the chief marketing officer, the chief brand officer, you can give yourself whatever term you want. And Stu's the guy who sort of makes the most noise and has the most external conversation. So he's the natural CEO. So he becomes the CEO. But we sort of talked about that stuff and just had really open conversations. And, and what we ultimately decided was, why are we having this conversation? Why is this, why is this relevant? And you realize you were having the conversation because this was a somewhat expected conversation out in the world that you know, when we went to raise some small amounts of investment, people say things like, okay, so which one of you is the boss? Who's the ultimate decision maker? How's your board structure work? And you go, Wait a minute, why is this relevant? And this came up again when we did bring on some small scale investors. And so we had to write our first constitution and that's a really grown up moment. And I remember again, having the debate, are we gonna have majority decision making or unanimity on the board? 
And we're like, well, there's only three of us. And I remember I made the case and said, if we can't, the three of us get aligned on a board level decision, not like on a bit of copy on a side label, but, but on a decision that needs a, a board vote, if we can't get all three of us on board, why would we do that? Why would we need a two V one majority decision making? Should we ever do anything? If the three, the three of us are all aligned at this stage, why would we ever be in a situation where we couldn't get all three of us behind a decision? And we all agree, well, that shouldn't happen. And so to this day, we've, we've navigated the world as co-CEOs, the three of us, every major decision goes through the three of us. There is no major decision this business is allowed to make without the three of us being comfortable with it. And again, as I go back to this, like I think there is a traditional sort of business theory that would say, well, that's, that's going to be too slow. But how on earth is that too slow? Like we talk at 8.30 every Friday morning or we try to and then we let a couple of weeks slip and then we get back on track. We're talking every day, you know, uh, about stuff. We are so close together, the three of us. We trust each other. We understand the level of decision that needs to be escalated to the three of us. And we understand the level of decision that we get on and do. And what it means is that when we're about to make a decision that is off course from a brand or a strategy or a values point of view, the overwhelming likelihood is at least one of the three of us will pick that up, will feel and smell that something is a bit wrong. The second thing that I think is really important is storytelling. And this is probably the bit, the, the, the flag that I fly, but, but Stu is fantastic at it, and as is Cam. Um, your strategy needs to live as stories that you tell. And the more that you take opportunities to tell stories to yourselves, to your team, to, to folks like you guys, you know, I give a lot of keynote presentations, Stu does a lot of interviews, we, we write a lot. The more that you tell these stories, the stories keep you on track. They keep reminding you what you're about. If, you're, if your brand story, if your organization story was written once by an external agency five years ago and lives in some collateral that no one ever references, then you probably shouldn't be that surprised that you're drifting further and further off course. You know, you, you, you made the, the point, I think, Rob, at the start that, you know, a lot of big brands are too far from their customers. I'd argue they're also too far from their stories. And so the story is kind of, you know, it's been chiseled into rock over there, but it doesn't live in their organization every day. So that simple act of repetitive storytelling, as you're telling it, if you've just made three decisions in the last week that are at real tension with that story, you will feel it. You'll feel the, the inauthenticity as you're talking about that. You're inducting a new staff member going, wait a minute. We've done three things in the last week that are completely contradictory to that. Why did we do that? So for me, those two things, that triple lock on decision-making and that act of constantly telling the stories of what you're doing and why you're doing it, they've probably been the two most powerful things to make sure that we stay true to purpose, true to values, true to strategy, even though we're moving far too quickly. We don't do enough planning. We don't write enough stuff down. We're not ahead of the curve enough on any of our planning or budgets but i think those two things keep us pretty honest you think having that experience has kept your head strong in terms of like that's definitely i know that's a traditional path and that's the expected path but you guys having that team mentality where it's like well we've, we've, we do have the battle scars let's just back ourselves we talk like sometimes problems that people um, raise are problems that you're having so you don't like you said you don't need to have that ceo you're like well we talk every day on whether it's messenger emails whatever we don't need that. So that's, that's something me and Rob have spoken about lately as well. It's just not taking everything on board and not doing the expected thing 
not so much and just look, learning that headstrong. Look, that's right. I think that's a hundred percent right. And then where you've just got to balance that is, is recognizing where that has the potential to start to become a weakness. So that, that, that sort of informality of communication, you know, one of the things that we've really started to build in the last 12, 18 months is a proper senior leadership team. You look at the, the way the shape of an organization like four pillars grows is you, you know, you start with the top team because that's the founder team. And then you start to build out scale from that. So really smart, willing, um, but probably more mid management folks. And really the top team is the senior management. And then you go, well, wait a minute, we're in 30 markets worldwide. We probably need a commercial director or two who's going to run those markets. It can't just be Stu. It can't just be Cam. It can't just be Matt doing marketing for all of those 30 markets. So we're going to need a senior leadership team. Oh, wait a minute. The way that Matt, Stu and Cam make decisions up here probably isn't very empowering of that senior leadership team if we're going to have them be senior leaders. So, okay, we're going to have to check how we do that stuff and, and moderate it. But I think there's, there's still a fundamental belief in that, in that doing things our way but that willingness to be open about the fact that our business is changing, our, our scale is changing. And yeah, sure. That means we have to challenge some of those habits and get better at planning and better at formally building a plan. It's no good if Matt, Stu and Cam have a chat at 8.30 on a Friday and by 8.50, we've rewritten the strategy if the poor folks trying to deliver that strategy don't know about it until two weeks time. So yes, we've had to modify, but still those fundamental philosophical beliefs about we can run this business the way that works for four pillars they remain. That's gross. That's cool. Do you think it's around clarity and culture that it creates for your team? Like you're talking about building a senior leadership team is that you want to, you want to empower, I guess, your senior leadership team to make decisions and, and act and be uh, to reach their potential yep. as, as people in your organization. How do you think that that plays into the culture of four pillars? Culture is a really interesting, interesting one. I've had, in my past life, I did a lot of work with, with organizations on culture. And, and one of the things that I think is, is often problematic for larger organizations is rather than understand the culture they've got, they try and write stories about the culture they wish they were. And they don't recognize how hard it is going to be to close down that gap to the culture they want to become. So their culture statements become fairy tales. They're just sort of nonsense documents about what we wish we were, but we're not. Four Pillars is probably at the other end of the spectrum, that the, the culture is very much an organic thing that's emerged from the intersection of Cameron's incredible can-do pragmatism and his taking care of his team in Hillsville, and he's just the most unbelievably down-to-earth but inspiring leader, Stu's charisma and bravado and optimism and belief that we can be extraordinary and then my thoughtfulness and 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 sense making and you combine those things and that sort of organically has created a culture and then maybe different people connect to different bits of that but then of course over time you have to kind of write that down and go well what does that mean for us as a culture because you need to be somewhat deliberate about it so i think what we've sort of done is is, is probably a culture has just emerged and then we'd never have used that word culture. And then you suddenly go, shit, we probably should document what this culture is and, and test whether the culture that we've become organically is what's going to serve us. And they go, you know what, we, we need to, to, to modify that a bit. So one of the things that we did last year was we, uh, we wrote down a little statement that, that, that was stay small, think big, because we recognized that the, the risk of our culture was we had, 
people who are at the small end of the culture, you know, small batch distilling, social media intimacy, customer storytelling, and then people at the think big side of the culture with sales targets. And it's really important to unify those and help people understand how they all connect rather than almost feel like there's a, a tension growing between the, the small people and the big people in the business say, well, actually, no, this is, this is all one thing. And, and, you know, we stood in front of the, 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 the whole crew about 70 folks we've, we've you know we've our growth has slowed a bit in terms of people at the moment for obvious reasons but we're you know around about squad around 80 of us at the moment you know, there's about 70 of us last year and we said look you know this is how the logic of, of what we do all sort of fits together and you know we are fully committed to being the best gin makers we can be and stay small is all about caring about every bottle and every batch and every botanical and every customer interaction and every every welcome and every thank you and and and, and we care about quality over quantity and we trust that quality is the rocket fuel for scale but at the same time there's no point us being the best gin makers we can be and the best gin makers on the planet if we're not getting the credit that craft deserves if we're not reaching more people with that better gin and don't think of it as salesy think of it as us getting the credit that cameron and ben and jez and all the guys distilling the credit they deserve and getting the credit that all you guys deserve delivering these great hospitality experiences we're just trying to scale that so as we commit to staying small, we commit to the, the quality at the heart of Four Pillars. And as we commit to thinking big, we commit to doing justice to that and reaching as many people as we can. So understand how it fits together. And then we just sort of talked about some cultural principles beneath that. So I think, I guess the point I'm making or not making or trying to make, failing to make, is that I think culture is a, is a combination of something that emerges organically but you need to take responsibility for, for taking a look at it and seeing what's happening and documenting that and then questioning whether that's exactly what you want it to be and then nudging it. But I think that's quite different to culture is just sort of an aspirational and somewhat, somewhat sort of unrealistic statement of what you wished you were, but in reality, you're nothing of the sort. How do, how, what is the process like when you're jotting that down, when you're in terms of the culture it, in it's organically happened like that. Do you just go through and go, well, this is, these are the types of effects that we're having. Do you go through the positive negatives? Is there a bit of a template there or? Look, I mean, in, in, I guess this is, this is one of the interesting things about my background that it is not in Stu, Cam and I are all people who care deeply about culture, but only one of us is someone who has spent the last 15 years of their career writing things down about culture and working on, cultural strategies and high performance strategies. And, you know, actually I've worked on agile culture strategies. Not that I know anything about agile, but I've worked with organizations that say, Hey, we're trying to implement agile and it requires a mindset shift in our business. And can you help us with the, the internal branding and storytelling and the employee engagement of, of, around that stuff? So only one of the three of us has done that. So we then play to our strengths and we don't make it a democracy. We go, fine. Well, Matt, you go away and work on that. I'll share that back with Stu and share that back with Cam and they'll, they'll smell out whether I've filled that page with bullshit or with, with truth, but we'll, we'll all play to our strengths and know, well, that's, that's a, that's a craft and a capability that Matt has. So I'll go and do that. And yeah, I'll draw on um, processes and things that, that I've used in the past, but I'm, um, there's a, there's a great guy actually who works in culture called Colin Peart. He runs an organization called Conversance and, and, I always remember something he said to me early on, like all models are wrong, but some are useful. So, you know, I just sort of draw on the usefulness of models that I've seen in the past and go, okay, well, that's a helpful way to think about this or document that. But, 
at the end of the day, you, you don't get driven by the model. So if you've got a template or something, it's a starting point. But what you're trying to populate it with is stuff that's useful and stuff that's true. And and then, as I say, that that's something that I probably I probably get out of bed more excited about that stuff than Stu and Cam. So I take responsibility for that. And then they they check the work and make sure substantially it's right. But we don't, but we, we play to our strengths very much. That's awesome. Hundred percent. I think, like you we were saying before, is the difference between culture and some of those different organisations that you mentioned. Mentioned is that um, I believe that culture is is living, breathing, moving, constantly changing. Um, compared to if you've just written it on the wall, it's a visionary statement. It's static. It doesn't yep. represent real life. I think there's an important thing that it creates empowerment through culture. So your your, your statement of um, stay small, think big, it drives innovation because you're telling people to think bigger than what you do think beyond what you're trying to, to achieve. And that's, if that's embedded within your culture, then it's going to drive behavioral traits that your people then show on a day-to-day basis. And do you know, what's interesting is that ironically, and I say this as someone who's, you know, spent so many years of my career as a communications professional of some type, the less you have to say it, the more it probably lives, you know, and, and one of the things that, that working in the brand experience space taught me was, you know, I, I started working for a brand experience agency called Jack Morton back in 2006. So pretty much pre-social media and worked with them until 2012. And we we're sort of at the other side of the early flush of the social media boom. And one of the phrases that I'm sure someone who worked for me coined, because almost every phrase I use, I stole from someone else. Um, and, uh, and, you know, she said, look, you know, most traditional brand organizations and, and, and strategists, they, they look at a brand as a noun and an adjective. What's it called and what traits describe it? And our job is to look at a brand as a verb. What does it do? How does it act? And that's a, a fundamentally different way to think and to document and to define and then respond to strategy. And the thing about thinking about brand as a verb, or in this case, culture as a verb, it means it's about what you do, not what you say. It's not about how many times you repeat the mantra. It's about how true the mantra is and how often that shapes decisions you make without even needing to refer back to it. And so there's always this sort of innate suspicion you have of an organization where its culture is defined by four big adjectives that live on a wall but don't live every day in decisions versus organizations that don't need this consistent and lockdown verbal expression of their culture, but you just see it in every meeting and every conversation and every decision and every output because it's, it's true and it's a verb. It exists. It's real and you can feel it yeah. opposed to words on a wall, trying to drive what values trying to say, here are the behaviors that we expect because we need to live these values. You know, it doesn't, that's, well, it's not really that it doesn't really make sense to me, yeah, but absolutely. you know, there's plenty of people out there that do it that way. Like we've taken up heaps of your time this morning. We're so grateful to have you on the show, but I know Locke's got one other good question is around cocktails. Oh yeah. Give us, give us a simple banging cocktail. We can make at home. Oh mate, there's, there's a few and simple cocktails are the only ones that I make. Um, but you know, let's, let's, let's go with a quick three. Um, uh, I think the gin and tonic is is remains the, the the best drink that God put in this earth. Like it, it just it's the drink for all seasons. And uh, let's just start making those rare dry gin 
GNTs with a, with a slice of orange. That that's gonna, that's going to change the game for starters. Second one, that bloody Shiraz gin that we make, we launched it in 2015. Um, it was a a completely random experiment involving some stolen Shiraz grapes um, and pouring gin over the top and just stirring away for eight weeks and pressing, and the gin came out the grapes blood red, natural sweetness. Now that instead of a gin and tonic, that with bitter lemon or what Phoebe Tree called lemon tonic, that's a sensational drink. The, the, the sweetness of the, the Shiraz gin, a little bit of the bitterness of that lemon, that's just beautiful. And then the last one, you can't go past a Negroni. Equal parts, gin, Campari, sweet vermouth, 30, 30, 30, 45, 45, 45, depends how generous you want to be with yourself. Just stir down equal parts over ice, slice of orange, bittersweet, balanced perfection. I think I've got a crush. I love you. Yeah, I've got a bit of a crush. Are we friends? I hope so. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call him a friend. Like if, if friends and family ask, he's a friend. Matt, Matt and I are friends, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, move on. Let's move on. What do we want the readers and... Oh, they're not readers. They're the readers. Listeners. Well, they're listeners. I want them to understand that uh, the biggest thing that took away from the, episode, the, the chat there was documentation and curation, understanding that content doesn't have to be hard, and marketing doesn't have to be a disconnect between what you want to do from a marketing strategy and a business strategy and that they should work hand in hand. Matt's a smart dude, understanding how a modern business works and the lengths that they're going to remove waste in their business and, and think they're just forward thinking, but they're empowering their employees through great leadership. Sounds like a good place to work. Hey, four pillars. Well done. See you next episode. Bye. Oh, that was cringe, but you nailed it. I liked Thanks. it. But what, hey, what do we want our listeners to do, Rob, before you start celebrating that grouse? I was, I was happy. I'm, I'm done. I was, I was well, we'll up. Do, All right, I'll talk about it. We need you guys to subscribe and leave some reviews and ratings and just boost us up the charts. Yeah, Apple Podcasts. Just give us some love. Even if you don't listen, if even you're a Spotify listener, go on the Apple Podcasts app and just download. It won't do nothing to you, your life, but it'll make a difference to ours. So thanks.